appreciate that. We're in the book of Luke, friends, and we are continuing in our series on the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11 is where we find ourselves today. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 11. If you do not, uh, there should be a Bible near you at the end of a row. Ask your neighbor for it. We, we do try to uh, stick to God's words and help us, and asking God to help us understand His words. So it'll help you if you have an open Bible as we go through what we are going to go through today. Now, we're going to tackle verses 14 through 32. And as we do that, I'm just going to open up by reading verse 27 and 28. But we will go through the whole of verse 14 through 32. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read those two verses, verses 27 and 28. And then I will pray. And then we'll dive in. The Word of God says this, Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. And as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray. Father, our greatest aim in this life by your great design is not being the greatest worker, being the most financially secure, being the wisest parent or having the best children. It's not having a marriage that everyone will look up to. It's not the pat on the back. Father, our greatest thing is that from generation to generation, may it begin with us, that we would live the blessed life by hearing your word, loving your name, and walking in your way. So please, Father, show us Jesus in this moment. May everything else grow dim. And may Jesus be beautiful. And would you give love to our hearts. For you and for our name. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. This week, tomorrow, is something that has not happened in the history of our country. Since 1776, this is the first total eclipse in the USA only seen by those in the states, and it will be visible from coast to coast. This solar eclipse will happen tomorrow in this area around 2 o'clock or so, and we even have several people that have traveled to get more into its path so that, so that they could see it better. But there is this kind of never-ending fascination with these massive bodies kind of moving and all of a sudden colliding. So if you understand how an eclipse works, this total eclipse, it is when the moon gets directly in between the earth and the sun. And so it's this rare positioning to where the moon completely blots out uh, the sun. 
uh, for a brief moment, two to three minutes is all that it will completely blot it out at any given spot in the viewing spectrum. Any other time, it's not completely blotted out in your view. You better have glasses on. There is things called eclipse blindness, and it can affect your retina, but that's another story. So, the question I have for us is, why is it so fascinating? Why in the world are we so enamored, believing people and unbelieving people, with staring up at the sky, even though it could cause eclipse blindness? Why is this? Well, in part, as you look tomorrow and the many that are in schools might be dismissed early and the sun might get dark for a season and it actually is supposed to get cooler. They say it could get 15 degrees cooler in that moment of time. When that happens, I pray that a few things happen in your heart. You realize you were created for something bigger than yourself. And we all on this planet are fascinated with things bigger than ourselves. Not one person on this planet can control what is happening. They can only try to mitigate circumstances. But what is really interesting about what is about to happen is you can do all kinds types of kind of spiritual analogies for what you might see tomorrow. But I think one that I would love to leave with you is no matter how much darkness tries to prevail, light will always break through. The light will not be completely eclipsed forever. The cross spoke to this. The devil seemed as if he had won. It seemed as if the curtain had closed. The drama was over. Jesus was a liar and God had failed. But three days later, darkness could not win. Light triumphed and broke through. The tombstone was rolled away. Christ was raised from the dead. And everything that He says is true. And what we collide with here in this moment, in this passage, is we are brought face to face with this very question. Is Jesus who He says He is? if he is, what does that mean for us day by day? Some of us have been followers of Jesus for many years. And we would say, yes, he is who he says he is. But we have day by day atheism. We begin to believe ourselves over God. We begin to doubt his provision and his goodness. And we begin to put ourselves on the throne of our own life. And then there are those who that question is a legitimate question. Is Jesus who He really says He is? And who does He say that He is? He says He is God Himself. Worthy of all worship and praise. More powerful than anything else on the planet. The one that we should call Savior and the only one who can take away our sins and our shame and guilt. That's who He says He is. And so... There is a war. A war going on in our hearts. A war going on in our world. And it is this one question. Do we believe Jesus is who He really says He is? And if He is, what does it mean for us day by day?
so we're going to go through this. We're going to focus in on this war that is being highlighted in Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look at these four things. The war is real. Is the banner over everything. And what we will see as we go phrase by phrase, verse by verse, we will see opposition from without, the battle for greatness, the enemy within, and then the ultimate question that is posed to us all is it the fight for faith. Who do you love? Let's begin with just this main idea of the war, that is a spiritual war, is a real thing. Where do I get this? Well, let's go back to the very first verse that we're going to look at today, and that is verse 14. And if you remember where we were last week, it was the famous passage of the Lord's Prayer. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If you ask for a fish, your Heavenly Father is not going to give you a serpent. He's not going to do that. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will I give good things to my children, namely the Holy Spirit? And then the next verse is this one, and that is, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. I'm not the best writer in the world, but that feels like it needs a transition. I will give you the Holy Spirit, now he was casting out demons. Okay? It feels like something that is jarring. Why is that? Luke didn't make an accident. It wasn't something that was just random. He put these two things together for this reason. What do we see in verse 14? We see when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Jesus cast out demons and allowed someone to speak who could not speak. Jesus is showing in this moment that he is more powerful than anything else. And when darkness is confronted, when Satan is assaulted, you better expect people to fight back. And that's what we see. We see people begin to slander him, again, begin to lie, begin to create confusion, begin to create accusation, because his kingdom was advancing. And they didn't like what they saw. There is a war that is unseen. It is a spiritual battle. It is as real as the ISIS attack this week in Spain and the altercations with the alt-right racists in Charlottesville. It is that real. However, we are told in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, that this war is not a physical war. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God. You hear the battle language? Put on armor. I don't know about you. I don't just wear armor for no reason. You know, actually, I just don't wear armor. But there's a sense that if you went into war, you would put on armor, okay? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against your spouse 
or against your kids or kids against your mom and dad. Your battle is not against your boss and it's not against your neighbor. There is a battle underneath the battle, a larger battle that is not fought with the eyes or with the hands, but with the heart. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a war going on, and it is real, and he says, be ready. Pastor John Piper says this, you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. Why in the world does he put Lord's Prayer and then casting out demons? Because there is a spiritual realm. There is a battle going on. There is a, a, a war being waged for the hearts of unbelievers and there is sin that is working in the human heart there is battles going on and we won't pray until we believe that we're desperate like a warrior we won't pray until we believe we are in a battle we will not know what prayer is for until we know that life is war the war is real and so what we begin to see in verse 14 through 23 is we begin to see that the war is real and that whenever God's kingdom advances, you better expect opposition. So there's opposition from without. Look at verse 14. Now into 15. We just read that Jesus cast out a demon. A man could speak. Verse 15. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul. The prince of demons, that's another word for Satan. Beelzebul means master of the house. Kind of the one who's in charge over the spiritual realm, over the evil spiritual realm. And he says he does that because he's on Satan's team, is basically what he's saying. While others, so some are lying about him, some are bringing accusations. If you've ever to follow Jesus and you've received accusations, lies, there have been confusions, there have been a separation of unity, just know this is not just a normal battle. Your battle is not against the physical accuser, it's against the spiritual accuser. And then he goes on in verse 16, it says, while others, some were lying and making up things, others were there to test it. To use him. Prove yourself. And they keep seeking a sign from heaven. Now, we'll talk in a second, underneath the point, the battle for greatness, about this wanting for a sign. Because he actually addresses that later. Right now, we want to dive into this opposition from people from without. People outside of us. Do you see that's what's happening in verse 15? you see that? He casts out demon by, demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They're lying. They're saying he's on Satan's team, and that's why this power was exerted. Because if they can say he's on Satan's team, then they don't have to follow him. You remember, the war is for this one question. Is Jesus who he says he is? They know who he says he is. The king of the universe, the God of God. 
He's the one that says, I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the Son of Man. Just go back through the book of Luke and look at all the things that Jesus says about himself up to this point. They don't like it. So, they don't know what to do with it other than to make up lies so they don't follow it. You're on Satan's team. Jesus, then verse 17, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household. What's the image? It's the image of a civil war. It's an image of people fighting against themselves. And when that happens, you decimate your country. And so he says, every kingdom that seeks to do this, if I'm casting out Satan, the very team that I'm supposed to be on, that's not a good recipe for winning. And then he goes on, verse 18. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, this was a little confusing as I read it and began to look at it a little bit more. But he's basically saying, there's other people other than me who claim to have the power of casting out demons or these spiritual influences. You follow them and stand in awe of them, but me, you say I'm on the devil's team. So, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that I'm on Satan's team and yet you follow them. Whether it's my disciples who are casting out demons, whether it's other Jewish leaders that are saying they're casting out demons, you can't say I'm on Satan's team and then you follow somebody else. You just can't have it both ways. Jesus is saying, one, you're saying I'm part of a civil war. That's just crazy and absurd. And two, you can't have it both ways. You can't say I'm on devil's team and... Your sons, those who are also doing these things, are worth following. And so he says, therefore they will be your judges. Verse 20. But if it is by, and this is beautiful, but instead, if you're wrong, and it's by the finger of God, the image could not be clearer. It is like this. I can cast out a demon and I'm not on Satan's team and you have some reckoning to do. Verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then it is not the kingdom of the devil that is coming upon you. It is the kingdom of God that is on the scene. And what I've said verse 21 he goes on to kind of dig in the analogy and this is helpful for us it's helpful for us because in our weak moments we are tempted to believe that other things are more powerful than God we're tempted to tempted to believe governments are more powerful than God our boss is more powerful than God the banking system is more powerful than God those who are in charge of our house decision is more powerful than God all kinds of things our circumstances, you wouldn't say it like that, but that's what we functionally believe. And so he uses an analogy to help us understand what it means that Jesus, as he describes himself, is on the scene. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Consider that the devil. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides the spoils. I love the image. The devil loses. He takes the armor off. The armor is on you like tight. And it's like, bing, rip it off. I'm in charge. I'm on the scene. I'm stronger. That's the message. The message is he can be trusted. He's not wrong. He's not crazy. He's not lying. He's who he says he is. And therefore, there's a great reckoning for our heart. What do we do with our great Savior? And he's already told us in chapter 9. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow him wherever you are. God is working through Jesus. And they don't like it. And Jesus' kingdom is advancing. And they don't like it. And when you participate in the works of Jesus. And his kingdom advances. Let me make it really clear what that means. When you are working towards a healthy marriage and you're not fighting against each other, the devil hates you. And it's a small little snapshot of his coming kingdom. When you are raising the next generation to love Jesus more than the world, the kingdom is advancing. It's a small little snapshot of his kingdom coming and the devil hates you. When our church is getting along and we love each other and we are unified around a common Savior, His kingdom is coming and there's a little bit of advancement and the devil hates it. Whenever we seek to break down racial and economic strongholds and we begin to listen to one another and multiple races begin to get along and multiple economic backgrounds begin to get along and we begin to call each other family, you better believe there will be opposition. Because the kingdom of God has come near. That's what the end will be. And the devil hates it. When you proclaim Jesus to your neighbor or to your co-workers or to your family members, the kingdom of God is coming. The word is being proclaimed and you better believe there will be opposition. KB, a, a hip-hop artist, spoke at, one of the, at the conference that we went to in Chicago and he said this. He said, if you proclaim a gospel that doesn't make Jesus offensive when Jesus' gospel made Jesus offensive, then you're probably not proclaiming the right gospel. You can't proclaim something in such a way that is so palatable that it loses the fact that we're sinners in need of a Savior. You can proclaim it in such a way escape with God who loves but when you do expect expect the opposition opposition from without and the war is real and it is a battle also it is a battle for greatness it is a battle for greatness 
The war is real, a battle for greatness. Let's flip back up to verse 15 and 16. It says this, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, verse 16, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. What does it mean for someone to seek a sign? Well, show me something to impress me. Show me something to convince me that you really are who you say you are because casting out a demon didn't do it for me. I need something else. I need a different sign. That heart is a heart of cynicism. And Jesus addresses that heart all throughout the Scripture. The heart that no matter what they see, they still need to see one more thing. And ultimately, that heart, their problem is not needing to see one more thing. Their heart needs to submit to one Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus loves people who ask questions. He loves it when people ask questions. The Bible is filled with people asking questions, but you can ask questions in two ways. One that makes you the Lord, and the one that makes or wants to know if Jesus is the Lord. When you put God on trial with your questions, as if He has to answer to you, then all of a sudden, you will never be satisfied no matter how many things you get in. But if you ask the question genuinely seeking to know, He loves that childlike heart. He loves that. Not the asking of the question, but it is the putting God to the test. Isn't that what it says there? Others to test Him kept seeking a sign from heaven. They had God on trial. Prove it! As if casting out a demon wasn't enough. Prove it. The cynic will never be satisfied. And so he addresses this in verse 29. He picks up this sign discussion in verses 29 through 32. You see that in verse 29? He says, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a, what's the word? Sign. You see the connection. So I'm not just making it up. He brings it back up. They seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And I'm like, huh? What's that mean? Okay. Well, he says, let me tell you. Verse 30. For Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. People of Nineveh were a people who worshipped false gods. They wanted nothing to do with the one true God. And Jonah did not want to go there. So will the Son of Man be to this generation. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah was a man who goes to a people and proclaims a simple message. Repent of sin and trust in the God of Israel. The God of the Bible. And when the people of Nineveh heard that message, They turned from their sin. They repented of their faith in themselves and of their wayward ways. And they began to follow. 
follows God. And Jesus says, that sign, what's the sign? Simple God. Turn from sin because you're a bad Savior and Jesus is a beautiful Savior. You are an evil sinner in need of a glorious, perfect Savior. That simple message is all the sign you need. And if you cannot embrace that message, Jesus ultimately saying, if you can't embrace the fact that I am the Savior, then you will not be convinced no matter what. He goes on to give an, another analogy like that of verse 31. The Queen of the South, we know her as the Queen of Sheba. I love the Queen of Sheba because she's from Ethiopia, and I have two Ethiopians. So, as my children, in case you didn't know, we adopted. Sorry. <laughs> That's probably a little confusing for those who don't know my story. I have two Ethiopians. That sounded a little weird. They have me too. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Stop there. She traveled all the way from northern Africa to the Middle East to see Solomon because she heard of his great wisdom. And they're saying, that's a sign for you. If someone can be so enamored with this wise one named Solomon that they are willing to travel across the earth to go see him, and someone greater than Solomon is right before you, then that's all the sign you need. All the sign you need is that Jesus is here and that He loves you and that He calls you to repentance. And so do you see that in verse 31? At the end it says, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh, verse 32, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. more impressive sign is not what they need because the impressive Savior is right before them. We have that same Savior in these pages right before us. And the reason I know that is in the book of John chapter 5 when the people were saying, I can't believe you, I can't believe you. He says, well, you've had Moses, the Old Testament. And if you don't believe Moses, then you won't believe my words. We have everything that we need in His Word to see Jesus and to follow Him. You don't need an external sign of the miraculous. You need time with your Savior. He's found in the Word. And it's a battle for greatness. It's a battle of being like a child. The cynic wants to place themselves as smarter than they are, as more powerful than they are. And this week I was meeting with a woman and she shared this with me. She said, I have been sharing with my kids for years. She said this, don't ever stop being a child. She said, don't get over two years old. She says, here's why. When my kids were around two, they started saying this. Mommy, I can do it myself. Mommy, I can do it myself. 
can do it myself, mommy. Anybody ever heard that? You've been around kids long enough, you have. No, I do it. I do it. That's us. All of a sudden, we've gone from complete dependence. I can do it myself. God becomes an appendix rather than Christ in everything. May we not get over two years old. And may we say, I can't do it without the Savior. That's not a lack of confidence. It's just confidence in the right place. It's not insecurity. It's security in the right place. It's the God who loves you. He sent His Son. His Son is who He says He is. So may the battle for greatness be turned over to Him. May we be very suspicious of our own thoughts of grandeur for ourselves. And may we trust Him that He is who He says He is. The battle is Jesus is who He really says He is. And if that's the case, then He gets all of me. But there's also the real war. It's not only a battle for greatness, but the enemy within. The enemy within. There's this weird section here in verse 24 that says this. This doesn't blow your mind or confuse you. I don't know what does. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. You following that so far? Good. No. Waterless places, you could think of what's a place that doesn't have water? A desert, right? You following that? Okay. There, in the scriptures, desert is many times compared to the place where the devil will dwell or the demonic realm. And so it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. So, follow the image. The person's heart is like a house. The devil is cast out. The devil can't find a place to dwell. So now what happens? Verse 25. And when it comes, it finds that the house is swept and put in order. There's room in the inn. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits. Seven is the number of completion, so don't get stuck on the number. Just get stuck on the fact that he's going to do a perfect work of trying to uproot faith. More evil than himself alone. And they enter the house, the heart, and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Whew, I'm worn out by that one. Why? What is Jesus saying? Well, first of all, we know from the scriptures that followers of Jesus whose heart has been changed cannot be indwelt by evil because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So there is no demon possession in the heart of followers of Jesus. There is sin that dwells within. We'll talk about that in just a second. But right now, what he is talking about are people who have not professed faith in Jesus. The word has come to them, and as it has come, they're like, yes, I'm interested in this Savior. The demon goes away. What do they do with their interests? If there is a sense of complacency, 
a sense of not going after the Savior, a sense of not surrendering all that they are to the Savior, then they should have no sense of security that what was in there will not only come back but get worse. There is this need for the unbeliever to not play around. In the Scriptures, it says that when unbelievers dive into lying, it says that the devil is there, their father. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that when people were eating food offered to idols as an act of worship, that they were participating with demons themselves. Once again, this might, you might be like, this is weird. This is real. You just don't see it. Unbelievers are surrendering their lives over and over and over to those who aren't out for their good. Demonic forces. And if they don't surrender, they could be overtaken. The last state is worse than the first. Now, many in this room are children of God. And what you have experienced is the inclination towards Jesus the house being cleaned and you saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. All that I am is yours. And who comes in the house? There you go. That, that's Sunday school answer, right? This should be pretty easy. Let's try that again. Who comes in the house? That's right. You've got a new daddy. A new master is in town. It's not Beelzebul. It's not the prince of demons. He's not the master of the house anymore. You have Christ who dwells within you. The Holy Spirit of God, His Holy Spirit, takes up residence. However, we have to understand what He's articulating. That there's still an enemy within. The Scriptures go on to tell us that there is some residue, some selfishness residue that's left upon the heart that we must fight against cleaning out these little portions by the help of the Holy Spirit, not by ourselves, but a constant day-by-day surrender to Him. Where do I get that? Well, what about James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? He says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with in you what causes quarrels and fights among you it's that my wife didn't do what she said she was going to do my children didn't obey like I thought they were going to obey the leaders over me weren't very kind it's like a child who's outside outside playing basketball And while they're playing basketball, a kid cheats. And the other kid loses. So the kid who loses goes up and smacks the kid who is cheating. And when you ask the little kid, why did you smack the kid? He was cheating. And I lost. He was cheating. He's a cheater. That's why I smacked the kid. Parents, lesson 101. You come in at that moment. 
hold that child and you say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry someone cheated against you. That's not how it's supposed to be. But I'll ask you the question. Why did you hit the kid? Because he cheated. No. Because you have sinned. But you had anger deep within you. That's why he hit wasn't because of them. Because you have something that needs to be saved right now. There's an enemy within. And the battle is real. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It's the passions that are at war within your heart. Even though the Holy Spirit has taken up residence, the war is real. Each and every one of you, including myself, there's something. There's something where we need to bow our heart to the Lord and admit that we are our greatest problem and not somebody else. War is real. There's an enemy within. And so the last question is this. Who do you love? It's a fight for faith. The last question is solved in the verses that we read, verses 27 and 28. And he said these things. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We really want to praise people for good things. And there's actually places in the scripture that say we should encourage people regularly. It says daily as long as it is called today so that we aren't hardened by sins deceitfulness. So don't hear this as don't encourage or anything like that. But Jesus was pointing out that Mary is not the hero in this moment. He is. And the blessed life doesn't come because she gave birth to Jesus. The blessed life comes from following the Jesus she gave birth to. The blessed life comes from hearing the word, internalizing it, loving the Savior, and following Him wherever He leads. Why did I say, who do you love? Because that's how the Scriptures talk about hearing the word. Many of you might hear, well, I have heard words today. I think they're okay. So I think I can say, I believe them, so I'm golden. This isn't about just hearing with your ears and being able to tell me back any part of the sermon. That's not the point. Hearing in the scriptures is the pulling in of information and the heart leaping for what you hear and the body and everything in you wanting to go wherever the Lord tells you to go. That's hearing it and keeping it. James chapter 1, verse 12 says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's just say it again just because it's great. Which God has promised to those who love him. That's the invitation in this moment. The war is real, and the battle is acute, 
and it is there not just every now and then, but every single day before your feet hit the floor in the mornings and as you go to bed, the battle is raging. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And if you believe it, then it affects everything. And he calls for you to not be a functional atheist, but to spend time in His Word, to see His Word, and let that shape you and mold you. That's why He connects it to the Lord's Prayer. You might bow your heart in prayer to this great God, who is your Father, who loves you, and who wants you to bring everything in your life to Him. Just come to Him. All who are weary and heavy laden, He will give you rest. The answer to this war is that the war has been won on the cross. The skirmishes still exist, so let's fight with the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's ask Him to change us, that we might be people who hear His Word and who love Him with all our hearts. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are with us and that You keep us. And so now, as we go to the Lord's Supper, I ask I ask that we will believe that life is a war so that then we understand what prayer is for. It is to admit that we are weak and needy and you are not. It is to cry out that you are our Father and you are in heaven and your name is to be hallowed and set apart and worship and adored because you are who you say you are. And we plead, O oh God, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Father, create surrender in this room. I pray, O oh God, that you would create surrender in our hearts, that we would say your will be done. And then you would use us to advance your kingdom. And that as we see your kingdom coming to earth in little snippets, and little flashes, I pray, O oh God, that we would be humble. We would be prayerful. We would be ready for the opposition. And we would believe that the battle is yours. The victory has been yours. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Make us those who not only receive your forgiveness, but who forgive others. And Father, with all, every need that we have, may we call out for you to give us tomorrow's bread today our daily bread. Meet us in these moments, I pray. Would you leave each heart in this room to a step of repentance? I ask, O oh God, that you would change.